Okay, so um, was it last time I gave you uh, an outline sheet that, did anybody not get that? Kind of a, it was kind of an outline of the book with an emphasis on the middle oh section. Oh, anybody not? I see those hands. Oh, wait, here, there's more. Here, there's more. Oh, that's right, you weren't here. Okay, I have one more, if, if that's not enough. There's an extra one there. Okay. Oh, I have a couple. They, they're not supposed to sign up until they pay. Because then what happens is people, is, no, is people sign up again when they pay. And then I end up ordering too many. And so then I have books at my house. Okay, so on this uh, sheet, we are in the middle section, duh, um, sorry, um, the middle section, which is, which is chapters 40 through 55, God calls his people to servanthood. The first section, he's like, you guys just aren't cutting it. You're, you're dumb, as, um, dumb as oxes and you're oxen and you're um, stubborn as donkeys and, and you're just going through the motions and all that stuff. So then in the middle section, he calls them to come to him, to come back to him. Not only to come, not only is he going to bring them out of exile, but that's, I mean, if he just brought them back into the land and nothing's changed in their hearts, you know, kind of big whoop, as they say. And then the final section is the marks of true servanthood, their godly character, how they can know or the evidences of being a true servant of God. If, you, if I really serve God, I'm going to become more and more like him in terms of character and, and especially our model of Jesus. So we're in that middle section where God's calling his people. Um, the, first, uh, the first under A, it's, well, why, sh why should they want to be God's servant? And, he's, and he just tells them like all the wonderful things that he's done for them, his grace and his, his mercy and, and, you know, he forgives them and all that. But right now we're in section B, which is, well, how can they become his servants? They have messed up royally. And you may, uh, none of us, of course, you may know somebody who has messed up royally and they may think, oh, God wouldn't want anything to do with me or, I, you know, God's mad at me or, you know, I could never uh, be back in fellowship with God because of what I've done. But this whole section is about the atonement of the ultimate servant and and so we are in um, chapter 52 now last week in chapter 51 um, I remember he said arise Jerusalem um, you are um, he talked about the cup of God's anger they had they had drank they had drank drunk they had they had drunk they they it was empty and, and, um, and that the time now for God's anger in, I mean, his righteous anger, it's not like he's petulant, like, well, I'll fix you guys. You know, his righteous anger, his, and it was a disciplinary measure that he sent them into exile. He didn't destroy them. He could have destroyed them just like that. But, but he, he wanted to get their attention. And so he sent them into exile and, and then, um, he's saying, you know what, it, the time is done. I mean, the amount of time that I thought that you needed to be there is just about completed. And now it's time for them to start thinking about coming back. Now, where are they in exile? Babylon. In Babylon. And some of them had settled in pretty well. So they might not even, they were like, eh, this isn't that bad. You know, I've got my friends here and all this stuff. So some of them probably didn't want to come back. But he's telling them to come back and he's giving them all these promises about what he's going to do and how he's going to restore. The land itself is barren and he's going to restore it and all those things. So that was chapter 51. He said the time of judgment is almost over. So now we're going to go um, 
into chapter 52. And all along, have you seen some hints that he's talking about more than just physically bringing them back to their land? That it, he's, he's hinting that it's that he's talking about their relationship with him. And sometimes he's more than hinting, right? It's going to become more clear that that's what he's talking about. And not only the Jews, but other people, you know, like us, assuming most of us aren't Jewish. And so, so this is pretty cool because we are in on these blessings. So let's look at chapter 52. Uh, did you give it a title or a theme? What was the point of chapter 52? Despised and rejected by men, 52. Okay, what else? Restoration of the Jews from Babylon and encouragement. Restoration of the Jews from Babylon and encouragement. Anybody else? Wake up to the Lord's redemption. Wake up. Yeah, you started out awake, awake. Wake up to the Lord's redemption. I put awake, expect redemption, and, and move, you know. He wants them to do some things. So, um, so who is it that's supposed to awake when it says awake, awake? That's like a command, right? Uh, instructions and imperative. So who is it that's supposed to awake? The exiles, God's people, right? And, and so um, back in chapter 51, the people said, awake, O God, and do something. And now God's saying, I have done something, and it's time for you to wake up and do something. So, um, so what are they supposed to do? There's about four, I don't know how many commands um, in the first couple of verses. What, what, are, what does he tell them to do besides awake? Clothe yourself. Shake off the dust. Yes. Um, but what I was thinking is some of these people he's talking to have never been to Jerusalem. They were born in Babylon. So it's hard when they're used to a lifestyle like we don't do anything else. Because mm -hmm. uh, they were there 70 years. So probably the older generation just died out and then there was another two generations. Mm -hmm. uh, mm, well, probably. So uh, Lucci's pointing out that some of the people, many of the people in Babylon, because they've been there how long? 70 years. 70 years. And so, so some, many of these people now among the Jews, they've never even been in the promised land. They've never been to the land of Judah. And so for God to say, okay, we're pulling up stakes, we're going back, it'll be great. They're like, mm, we're kind of settled in here and all that. So, so he tells them to, um, to clothe themselves in, other, in your strength and in your beautiful garments. So he's saying, I've provided what you need. You just need to put it on. You need to walk in it. Um, shake yourself from the dust. And remember back in, oh, where was that? Oh, in chapter 47, he said, Babylon will sit in the dust. So he's saying now, shake off the dust. Like, you know, you're done with this. We're moving on. And so he's urging them to do something. Loose yourself from the chains, O captive daughter. So, so um, they, he, it's time for them to respond. He's been telling them over and over and over what he's going to do. And now he's doing it, bringing them back. And remember, this was um, possibly, possibly this prophecy was given before they ever went into exile. But also there was the theory, if you saw the, the Bible Project uh, video, there's also the theory that uh, there's some suggestion that maybe Isaiah wrote some of these things down and then they didn't read them until later. Some of his disciples, his uh other places in the Old Testament it talks about the school of prophets, um, like during the time of Elijah. And so he may have had other people that, that were um, attentive to what God was saying, and he may have trusted them with these messages. So either way, um, it's given before it happens. So in verse um, 3, he says, do all these things, you know, cut yourself loose, 
um, clothe yourself, rise up, you know, all this stuff. I have, oh yeah, rise up in verse two. I was gonna say, where's rise up? Did I just make that up? So, so when we get to verse three to six, it starts out with four. So it seems like maybe this part is a basis or a reason or a rationale or a means. Somehow it's connected with what he's telling them to do. So in um, three to six, what's his point? What, what's, what's he talking about, about Egypt and the Assyrians and his name being blasphemed and all that stuff? What's, what is God's point in three through six? Lucci says he's assuring them that indeed he is powerful enough to rescue them. Um, and that's probably a very, very good point because he says, my people went down at the first. So like, well, first, first of all, they went to Egypt. Did I get them out of Egypt? Yes. And then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. So that's about the north, right? And then he says, now, therefore, what do I have here? <laughs> I can just see God like, and now what do we have here? You guys are in Babylon. <laughs> he is reciting their history. And, and there's all these little um, allusions through, well, not just this chapter, to the Exodus. That was a big event in their history. That was a time when God brought them out of another culture, another country, another nation, preserved their identity while they were there, brought them out miraculously and brought them back to the land. So there's, there's parallels to what he's going to do now, years later, when they're in Babylon. He's, gonna, he's preserved their identity. He's going to bring them out and bring them back to their land. Um, let's see. Um, therefore my people, verse 6, shall know my name. Therefore in that day I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. In other words, I'm going to act on your behalf. You're going to know it's me. And then when we get to verse 7, it says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Now what is this good news? We always think good news means the gospel. But it's a little different in this passage. So what is the good news? He's, he's picturing that they're going to, somebody's going to hear some good news. There's going to be um, the feet of him who brings good news. So like a runner's going to come and, and announce something. And what is it that the runner's going to announce? That they can return That they can return. Who announces peace, brings good news of happiness, announces salvation, and says to Zion, your God reigns. In other words, God is taking charge of this situation and he's making things happen. And then it says, your watchmen, so he's probably talking to Jerusalem or Zion is the kingdom term. And he's saying, you know, they have, they have some watchmen probably um, and they're gonna shout and they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. And they're supposed to rejoice and be glad. And then it's very interesting. Verse nine says, shout joyfully uh, the waste places of Jerusalem, because the Lord has comforted his people. There's that word comfort again. He has redeemed Jerusalem. He has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. So the original plan, why God called, um, when God called Abraham, he said that he would be a light to the nations and his descendants, the Jewish people. And they've, kind of, they've gotten off track. They're not a very good light. And now he's saying that when God does this and brings them back, that that's going to speak powerfully to the other nations. So he's not doing it just for the sake of his own people. He's doing it for the Gentiles, which is us. So that's a future prophecy then? Um, I think that that's, not, I think to some degree the nations would go, wow, but I think that that's also alluding to the future. A lot of these prophecies, you know, there, there's a near fulfillment near to them, and then there's some things that haven't happened even now um, in our time. 
Um, let's see, I wanted to look at, oh, verse 10, it says, the Lord has bared his holy arm. Remember we talked about the arm of the Lord and there's several times that he's talked about the arm and we talked about that that word means uh, strength or power and, and it refers more to the shoulder than the wrist and that it can refer even to the sacrificial portion of some of the animal sacrifices because they were to, to give certain portions of it, of the, the meat would be, you know, given to the priests and certain portions were supposed to be uh, burned completely and all that. So, so it's about God's strength and it even hints at redemption, right? So, so when it says he has bared his holy arm, Bared um, means to strip or uncover, to expose. In other words, he's, he's shown his power. It's kind of like, you know, when guys go, look at this, you know. He's shown his power by action, by action, by, by freeing his people and bringing them back. So, um, and the result is that not only will he bring them back, but these other nations will see. So... Um, what God does with Israel will be instructive for the whole world. Now, in 11 and 12, what, how is this like the Exodus and how is it different from the Exodus? Because he's, he's kind of comparing it, isn't he, a little bit? Okay, they, weren't, they have more time. They're not in a big rush. They're not, um, the enemy's not chasing them like Pharaoh was, you know, at some point in Egypt. Um, anything else? They're carrying the vessels of the Lord. Okay, so they're carrying the vessels of the Lord. And in Ezra 1, verse 7, it talks about when, when the people came back, Ezra and Nehemiah are, are about when the people were coming back and rebuilding and all that. Uh, it says that they, they brought some of the vessels so apparently when they went into exile, they took some vessels. Ba Babylon stripped them. That's right. So somehow they had some of the vessels. And they brought back some from Babylon. In uh, Egypt, the people said, here, take our goodies, get out, get out. And then they changed their mind and chased <laughs> So, uh, for the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard, like he did with the people in the desert. Remember he said, I'll, I'll, I'll have a cloud um, around you at, um, during the day and a pillar of fire at night and I'll be your rear guard and all that. So he protected them as they moved through the desert. So he says in the same way, he's going to, he's going to open the way and they're going to be able to get out. So, so. Yes. 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 Purify yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Touch nothing unclean and purify yourselves. In other words, we're, we're starting fresh. We're going to get back to the basics. Yes. Yes. Um, let's see. Yes. Yes, Cyrus said, go, go, my friends. And, and Pharaoh at first said, get out, but then he changed his mind and said, oh, what have I done? And so then they chased him. So, so there was haste. And this, he says, now they don't have to rush. Okay. So, so God's talking about how things are going to be, about him, him bringing them back and, and that, um, that invitation that urging even to to look to God to trust him um, at one point I think in chapter 51 he said don't fear man remember he said why do you fear man that's just transient you know you ought to be respecting and revering the eternal God um, don't forget about God he said so now uh, I'm going to consider that verse 13 and 14 and 15 are actually more closely connected to chapter 53 um, because he talks about his servant and he'll be um, 
lifted up, his appearance will be marred. So it's, it's pretty similar to a lot of chapter 53. So I think if we take that together and, and in the servant songs, you know, in that chart, it, the servant song goes from verse 13 of 52 all the way through the 12 verses of 53. But that, that's considered one, um, one unit. Okay, let's see. So verse 13 talks about, My servant shall prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And this phrase, high and lifted up, is used four times in the book of Isaiah, and the other three times are about the Lord God. So, so here when he's talking, he's, well, who is, who is the servant? So we, we're pretty sure the servant is Jesus, and, and um, it's a hint at his deity, right? Because the other three times it was the Lord God. So he says, my servant shall prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Now that sounds wonderful, but then he goes on and talks about what's going to happen before that. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. <laughs> It's like, oh, he'll be, you know, he'll be exalted. He'll do this and that. No. Just as many were astonished at you, and then it's in italics, but it, it's implied he's talking about the people. So his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So um, I believe it's saying that, that through... Um, what, what he was going to undergo, he would be messed up physically. So first he says, now he's going to be exalted. He's going to be high and lifted up. He's going um, he's, he's to prosper. But then he talks about this other stuff. So if I were hearing that, I would be a little confused. And, and then verse 15, thus, or therefore, he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what has not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. <clears throat> so what, what does it mean that he will sprinkle many nations? Didn't you think that was kind of an odd little phrase? He will be what? Cleansing their sins. And what did you say? His blood is to cover all. That sprinkle, um, I looked up the definition of the Hebrew word. And it's, if you're a word nerd, it's number 5137. And it means to splatter, especially in expiation. Well, that really clears it up. But it means in the course of a sacrifice, uh, a blood, you know, an animal sacrifice that because in the, in the, uh, directions that God had given, they were supposed to splatter the blood. And so it's a, it's a picture of redemption, of him being the means of, of uh, atonement for people. No wonder chapter uh, 53 begins, well, who would willingly suffer? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's partly why I think this section goes with it. Because first he says, oh, he's going to be highly exalted. He's going to prosper. Things are going to be wonderful. He's going to sprinkle the nations. You know, he's going to bring uh, atonement for the nations. And then it talks about how he's going to be beaten up and marred and, you know, disfigured and all that stuff. So, so then he starts out, as Joe said, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So he's kind of saying... Um, boy, this is kind of, this is a little confusing. We don't really get exactly how it all goes. So um, I thought we would go through, um, how many of you uh, did, let's see, what were, you were supposed to read 10, was it 10 different versions? Oh, four. Well, I did 10. Overachiever. Okay, so how many of you did that? Cool. Yeah, and how many of you tried to rewrite the verses kind of in your own words then? Gave, at least gave it a shot. Cool. I found that that um, 
I did a little bit different thing. I found the 10 simplest versions of the Bible that I could find, like the children's Bible and the, you know, that kind of thing. I, I did 10. And then I went through all 10 of them. I'd read verse 1. And I'd say, okay, I think this means this. And then I'd look at all 10 and figure out which one I thought captured it best without a lot of big words. And so um, when we get done here, I'll read you my, then I said, okay, well, this version really did verse three well, and this version did seven and eight well. So I have it all kind of cobbled together. But I found that very helpful to get the gist of what, Chapter 53 is about. So, the Living Bible, which I don't consider a Bible. Yeah. (laughs) The Living Almost Bible. Yeah. 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 I I thought that it was a pretty good job. Yeah. Yeah. For people to understand. Yes. To get the basics. The Living Bible is good. Um, And the message is another really simple one. I found versions I didn't even know existed, like The Voice. International Children's Version, the easy-to-read version, <laughs> New English Translation, um, New Century Version, um, The Voice, I said that, The Message, International Reader's Version. I wondered if that was designed for people who English is not their first language. I, I'm not sure. Uh, contemporary English version and the Good News translation. So, okay. So, what is verse? What's the gist of verse one? Joe kind of hinted at it. Yeah, it's like, wow, this is this is not straightforward and simple. It's like, who's who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I think. Um, the arm of the Lord, we talked about, you know, it's that same word. And sometimes Jesus is spoken of as the arm of the Lord in the sense that he is, he is the means of bringing victory, overcoming the enemy, uh, securing atonement, all those things. So it could be talking about Jesus there, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. And revealed, um, if, if he's been revealed to somebody, then that's kind of parallel to believing the message, but I think. But the Jews received the revelations. Only the Jews received the revelation from God mm-hmm. in, through God and the prophets. So could that mean, hey, I reveal this to you, Jews? Yes. So Lucci's saying we have to remember that the Jews were the ones who received the law and the prophets, by and large, that was for the Jews, and that maybe he's saying, hey, you're the ones uh, that I've revealed this to, and have you believed it? And then it talks about, um, did anybody anybody write verse 1, rewrite verse 1 in a way that you thought was easier to understand? Yes. Who would believe the good news of salvation? Yeah, similar. Okay. Okay, so then it talks about verse 2. He grew up before him. So who's he and who's him? I think Christ grew up before God. Like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. So in other words, he kind of um, maybe started small, um, uh, he didn't, um, he came in a setting where maybe he wasn't expected, that kind of thing. The, the def, or the meaning of the word um, tender shoot is um, a twig sprouting from a fallen tree. And I thought that was kind of cool because I remember God's talked about, I'll raise up a, I'll raise up a branch from David and all that, or Jesse actually from Jesse. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. So what did you, were you able to rewrite that in a little easier to understand? Yeah, I said the Messiah would come from 
Mm -hmm. And it didn't look like it came for a movie star. Mm -hmm. Oh, good. Good. The Messiah would come from a humble family, and he didn't look like a king or a movie star. But um, what was the rest of it? Um, but, but he was fully human. But he was fully human. Mm -hmm. Anybody else do verse 2? Much different. Okay, verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like the one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Anybody paraphrase that? Man, man hated him. Man, <laughs> that's short and sweet <laughs> or not sweet. Man hated him. And they misunderstood him. Yeah, didn't, didn't get what he was about. They misunderstood him. Mm -hmm. When it says we did not esteem him, it means that they didn't consider him anything to be respected or honored or... Um, they didn't care. Yeah, didn't pay attention, didn't care. They, they turned their back on him. Yes, turned their back on him. Okay, verse 4. Surely, so he's talking about how he was... He wasn't anything flashy, but then verse 4 shifts a little bit and it says, Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. So what's the point there? He died for our sins. And we thought God, like, well, he had it coming, that God, God was punishing him for some, something that he had done, right? So that's when it says we did not esteem him, we, we, did, we esteemed him stricken. That means that, you know, he deserved what he got. Verse 5, but, in other words, we thought, we thought that, but the reality is, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Anybody have a good paraphrase of that? Yes. And what version is that? That's the easy English Bible. Easy English Bible, okay. Yeah. And I will mention that um, verse 5 or, uh, is either quoted or alluded to in several places in the New Testament. Uh, Hebrews 9.28, Romans 4.25, 1 Corinthians 15.3, another one in Hebrews 5.8, First Peter 2, 24 and 25, and 2 Corinthians 5, 21. That's a pretty crucial point that that verse makes, that so many different places in the New Testament it was quoted. And we're healed spiritually. Yes, by his scourging we are healed, and that's talking about spiritual healing. He took physical, he was, he was um, scourged physically, but also he took upon himself sin. And so when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because there was, there was now a space, a, a distance between um, Jesus and God the Father, which had never happened in all of eternity. 
they had had perfect um, respect and honor for one another, perfect love, perfect communication. They were, they were um, united in plans and, you know, all that. And then there comes a time when God turns his face away because of the sin that was placed on him. Okay, verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So it's kind of saying the same thing as verse 5, but a little different. How did you rewrite that? When I'm talking to God, it's a little drama, you know. Uh-huh. Good. Anybody else? Slide. Would you repeat that? Oh, okay. All of us have disobeyed God and wanted to have our own way, but because Jesus loved us, he took our punishment for us. All of us have disobeyed God and wanted to have our own way, but because Jesus loved us, he took our punishment for us. Okay. All right guys did great. Verse, <coughs> <coughs> verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. So what's the point there? What, what is, what is, What's the, what's the message, the point? He didn't complain about what was happening. He didn't make excuses. Though he was innocent, he took it for us. I think that's, uh, that's a big part, isn't it? His willingness. That's, I think that's what it's saying is like a, a sheep, you know, they're not fighting against what's happening to them. Yes, yes. And verse 7 is also cited or alluded to several times in the New Testament. So here are some of the references. And some of these are actually describing um, how, you know, the, the crucifixion too. Matthew 26, verse 63, and then chapter 27, verses 12 to 14. Mark 14, verse 61, and then chapter 15, verse 5. Luke 23, 9. John 19.9, and then in Acts 8, chapter 8, verse 32 and 33. Okay. Someone has said that he was silent but not helpless. You know, he could have, of course, avoided the cross very, very very much within his power. Uh, verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? Anybody? He wasn't given a fair trial. Yes. Yeah, I think that's the I think that's the key that he didn't have a fair trial that by oppression and judgment. I think that's the idea is that it was a messed up trial. And the people, I don't think the people realized he was dying for them. No, people did not realize that he was dying for them. 
Um, as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? They didn't get that he was dying on their behalf. Okay, verse 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So what's the idea there? Okay, Lucci's saying, well, if he was assigned a grave with the wicked men, but something else happened. If people were, if people were, um, the, you know, criminals were the ones crucified, and if there wasn't anyone to specifically to claim the body, they just threw him in a trench, and it was a mass grave. So kind of like that, you know, that he was considered wicked because he, and he was crucified based on this bogus trial, but uh, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence and there was no deceit. So anybody, how did you paraphrase that? Mm. Yeah, had done no wrong and never spoken an evil word. <laughs> uh, let's see, I have 1 Peter 2.22 as a cross-reference there for the, the second part, because he had done no violence. Okay, how about verse 10? But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he would see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. That's kind of a long one. God's will and plan. God's will was accomplished. Yes. So um, God's will was accomplished because Jesus was willing as a servant to take the punishment for us and we became part of his family. This goes back up to where it says, um, as for his generation um, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, that kind of implies like he was he didn't have any children. You know, that was a big deal in the Jewish culture is you, you have to have children to carry on your line in terms of the tribal lands and just lots of things and now it's saying oh no he will see his offspring meaning we're it yeah. we're it yeah he was the perfect sacrifice i mean he didn't have that sin mm -hmm. he didn't speak that evil so he was like all the perfect animals had been offered he was the only one that actually mm -hmm. qualified mm -hmm. to be that sacrifice Carol's pointing out that in the Old Testament, uh, the animals had to be without blemish. They had to, you know, and the priests would inspect them to make sure they didn't have some ringworm or, you know, something. And Jesus was really the only one, the only, only blameless, sinless, no word of deceit or anything that could, that could do that. All right, verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. I have a couple of cross-references for this verse. John 10, 14 to 18. And Romans 5, 18 to 19. Um, okay, anybody want to jump in on that one, how you paraphrased it? <laughs> this one was kind of hard. Mm -hmm. I have, as a result of his suffering, there's a happy ending. Well, as a result of his suffering, there's a happy ending. He came back to life. Yes, yes. 
Yes. Yes, that's why it's hard is to think, okay, how can I, I have to understand it before I can explain it simply. Can't hide behind big words or Christianese terms and that kind of stuff. Anybody else for a verse, did you get that far, verse 11? He took on our sin and paid our price for redemption. But that's still big words. That's still big words. Um, okay, verse 12. Therefore, <clears throat> so this is kind of the conclusion, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Anyone? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. That's good. Okay. Yes. Wow, that's good. You are you are a good teacher of eight eight year olds. I can't repeat all of that. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. <coughs> yes. Um, let's see. The word interceded, we usually think of that as prayer, but it just means to go. Um, to be like a go-between. Like if I intercede for you, Esther, that means I'm going to talk to God about what, what you need. And so it doesn't have to be prayer. We kind of have taken that as a specialized meaning, but he's a go-between or he's a... He, in the place yes, in the place of another, yes. Okay, so I might have to shuffle around. I, I'd like to read... The version, like I say, I've got 10 different versions here. And I have verse 1 marked on 1 and one, verse 2 marked on 2. But didn't you find trying to do this helped you figure out what, I mean, I have a whole different appreciation for this chapter now. One of the most important chapters in the whole book of Isaiah. Okay. Who would have believed what we now report? Who could have seen the Lord's hand in this? That was verse 1. Verse 2, like a young plant or a root that sprouts in dry ground, the servant grew up obeying the Lord. He wasn't some handsome king. Nothing about the way he looked made him attractive to us. Verse 3, people looked down on him. They didn't accept him. He knew all about pain and suffering. He was like someone people turned their faces away from. We looked down on him. We didn't have any respect for him. Verse 4. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. But he was hurt because of us. He suffered so. Our wrongdoing wounded and crushed him. He endured the breaking that made us whole. The injuries he suffered became our healing. Uh, verse 6, we're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way, and God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong, on him, on him. He was treated badly, but he never pro protested. He said nothing, like a lamb being led away to be killed. He was like a sheep that makes no sound as its wool is being cut off. He never opened his mouth to defend himself. Verse 8, justice miscarried and he was led off. And did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare 
beaten bloody for the sins of my people. Gotta find verse nine. Verse 9, they intended to bury him with criminals, but he ended up in a rich man's tomb because he had committed no violent deeds, nor had he spoken deceitfully. You know, also, if he'd been in that, um, the resurrection wouldn't have been as obvious. You know, God wanted him in a very definite place so they knew that he was risen. Verse 10, but it was the Lord's good plan to bruise him and fill him with grief. However, when his soul has been made an offering for sin, then he shall have a multitude of children, many heirs. He shall live again and God's program shall prosper in his hands. Uh, let's see here. Got two more. Oh, here we are. Um, verse 11, as a result of the trials and troubles that rack his soul, God's servant will see light and be content because he knows, really understands what it's about. As God says, my just servant will justify countless others by taking on their punishment and bearing it away. Verse 12, because he exposed his very self, laid bare his soul to the vicious grasping of death and was counted among the worst, I will count him among the best. I will allot this one, my servant, a share in all that is of any value because he took on himself the sin of many and acted on behalf of those who broke my law. So this, I found this really helpful to just to get a better understanding of just how we, you know, the people that were alive at the time didn't recognize who he was. They didn't see the significance of it. Well, even his closest disciples didn't get it till after he was raised, right? Now, did you take that out of the different versions or did you write it No, this, this I took out of the different versions. I've never thought of that because it's Sunday school. Because we read out of the New Living Translation. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it doesn't make any sense to the kids. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to start doing that. I just went on, uh, what's that website? Bible Gateway, there's, I mean, they have versions I've never heard of, as well as other languages and everything, so, so, yeah, I, I just looked, I did 10, and I just, I, I read the verse in the text in our, in our NAS, and then I think, okay, I think I get what that verse is about, then I looked through all 10 to see which of those I thought captured Somebody's calling me. I don't know who it is. Um, okay, so what time is it? Okay, so it's about 11, so we will watch the video.